Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us before we begin this morning. Father, thank you again for just um, an exciting time here this morning at, at your church, Father. Thank you for these kids and for a time to worship and give and pray, Lord, and just focus on you. And I pray we just continue that focus right now. Lord, as we open the truth of your word, Father, I pray it would be clear to us. I pray it would be understandable. I pray that the, um, for the verses that we read would speak truth into our hearts. Father, I pray as I pray every Sunday morning, through the power of the Spirit, may we be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, it's good to be back this week. Let me just thank Jason again for filling in for me. He's over there somewhere. There he is, Jason. Thank you. Excellent job. The neat thing about going away is I can listen to it on podcast, so I know if it was good or not before I get home. And it was very good. Let me just uh, again express to you how excited I am to have a man leading our student ministry that understands the gospel. That's important. I'm, I'm, I don't want to get on the soapbox here for a second, but we, we don't need a generation of kids that enjoy to be enter, that want to be entertained and play games all the time. I'm stepping on some toes right there, I understand. We, we need a generation of kids that are discipled. Because if you're not paying attention to the news, you ought to. The world's changing. And the world they're inheriting is quite different from the world we inherited. And so I'm just thankful that Jason is down there preaching truth to those kids and challenging them week in and week out to be followers of Jesus Christ. So Jason, thank you. I was gone last week because I was at a conference in Dallas, a South Asia Mission Conference. And so we had the opportunity to meet with the IMB, that's the International Mission Board, and we got to meet a lot of our missionaries and people that are serving in the field in South Asia. And we knew some of them already, got to connect with some others. I got to meet, uh, if you've ever read the book, The Insanity of God, if you haven't read it, you need to read it. I've been saying this now for probably a year. If you haven't read The Insanity of God, you need to read it. But the author, Nick Ripkin, was there. He spoke. I got a chance to meet him and shake his hand and talk briefly to him. But the thing I walked away with the most out of this conference was one simple truth. The relationship that we have as a church with the missionaries in South Asia that we're partnering with is correct and it's in the right direction and we're doing great work there and the Lord is blessing that. So we're going to continue that partnership. We're going to continue to move forward. We've got a strategy and a very clear plan and the Lord is blessing it. We're going to continue to walk down that path and as Randy said, we're trying to gather a team for the latter part of this year as well. We'd only plan two, but the missionaries over there have basically begged us to come back. They need our help. And so if the Lord is speaking to you about South Asia, you need to talk to Randy or I. We'd love to tell you more about it. Okay, Genesis chapter 6. We're going to continue our study this morning in the book of Genesis. Our sermon series entitled, In the Beginning. And I want to review for you just briefly kind of where we've been. And I want to look for a second at where we're going. Over the last few weeks, we've kind of seen two different paths, two diverging paths. Path number one was Cain and his family. We studied Cain a few weeks ago. We saw that Cain was ungodly, unrepentant, not interested in the things of the Lord, and he led his family away from God and away from following the things of the Lord. Now, we contrasted that last week with the line of Seth. 
The Bible tells us that with Seth, men begin to call on the name of the Lord. And so we get this, this kind of opposite competing path. Cain is away from the things of the Lord. Seth is a man who seeks the Lord. He's godly. He walks with the Lord on a daily basis and his family follows that model. Now we've kind of seen these two paths through the book of Genesis We're going to see it as we continue our study. And if we were to fast forward in today's time, we could kind of summarize those two paths very simply like this. You have two choices in life right now. You can choose either to follow and please the Lord, or you can choose to please yourself. Isn't that kind of the battle we deal with every day? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, every day you wake up, you've got a choice. Am I interested in what the Lord's called me to do or am I interested in what I want to do? So we've seen these two paths and we've seen some godliness in these paths. But I want you to understand something. We kind of see where we've come from. I want you to understand where we're going. Even though we've seen pockets of godliness in our study so far... We've seen that the devil is doing the best he can to take over and destroy these people. And so where we're ultimately going here, not this week, but the next, next couple of weeks, we're going to get into what the Lord sees as the sinfulness of man and his wrath that we'll talk about this morning is going to lead us eventually to destruction. That's where we're going. Now if you're taking notes, you need to put a note down in your book, in your Bible, wherever you're taking notes, you need to circle and highlight it. Sin always leads to destruction. Period. It always has, and it always will. And when we begin to flirt with this idea that we can sin and move away from the things of the Lord without repercussions, we are fooling ourselves. So let's take a look this morning. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to study the first eight verses. We'll begin by reading Genesis Verses 1 through 4. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now I want to stop there for a second. I want to give you what I believe is kind of the first truth. And I want you to give me a few minutes to kind of unpack this. It'll take us a few minutes to kind of look at some biblical examples and think through this. But I want you to understand truth number one is this. We see in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, and it's a continuation of this idea of the sin of the world. We see, number one, the earth endures a demonic invasion. The earth, in verses 1 through 4, is going to endure a demonic invasion. Now I want to confess something to you. These first four verses are very difficult to understand. And I've spent, thank you, I've spent a lot of time praying through that this week. I could have used more amens than that on that one because they're hard to understand. I've spent a lot of time praying through this week, struggling through this, studying this. And I can promise you, if you ever read these first few verses and done any real study, you can read ten different commentaries and you can get ten different answers. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got a thought. It's so difficult because there are certain things in these first few verses that we just don't understand. 
So we ask questions like this. Who, who are the sons of God in verse 2? It doesn't really explain that to us. Who are the Nephilim in verse 4? What does that really mean? What does it mean that they were heroes of old, men of renown? These are difficult questions that scholars and writers have kind of struggled with through the centuries. One writer said it like this. Unquestionably, Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is the most demanding passage in Genesis for the interpreter. Every verse is a source of exegetical difficulty. But we're going to walk through it. We're going to wade into it, and I am confident that you guys are going to come out on the right side. And let me, just, let me just say this before we kind of delve into this. We ought to want to dig into the Word of God, shouldn't we? Right? We shouldn't come to passages we don't understand and just set them aside because we don't want to spend the time studying them. We ought to be called people who are studying and interested in the Word of God. And so we're going to delve into this and see if we can better understand it. Now there are two groups I want to point out to you in verses 1 and 2. Two groups are going to help us kind of understand where we're going there. They're simple. You can see them. There's the sons of God. That's group number one. And they're the daughters of men. That's group number two. That's what this passage kind of revolves around. There's this relationship between the sons of God and the daughters of humans or the daughters of man. Now the daughters of man are kind of explained in verse 1. It's pretty clear there. The Bible says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them. So the daughters of man are very simply girls born to a mom and dad. It's a pretty simple model. The Bible explains it. We understand it. We see it. We've seen it from the beginning, and we'll see it all the way through the end. These are normal children that are born to normal parents. But the question becomes for us now, who are the sons of God? And this is where the difficulty begins. Now, what I've done is I've kind of whittled down. If you were to take all these different commentaries and you were to read all of what they said about these few verses, there are kind of three main ideas that surface. There are three kind of prevailing views, three positions that most scholars take, and I want to talk through these three and think through them together. Here's the first position that most scholars take, or some scholars take. Number one, they believe that the sons of God were powerful human kings. Now what they would say is that there were these rulers on the earth at this time, they were powerful, they were well-known, they were simply humans, they weren't anything beyond humans, but they were very powerful kings, and they produced this strong race of people, the Nephilim. Now most people believe the Nephilim were giants, they were larger of some type, the Bible tells us they were men of renown, we don't know exactly what that means, but there's something important and something power about the Nephilim. So some scholars would say these were just very powerful earthly kings, they were humans, that married these women and had children with them. There are two kind of main problems to that idea. Problem number one is the text in no way indicates that these are kings. It doesn't say anything about earthly kings. There would have been kings at that time, and you would have expected if these were kings, they would have been called kings because they are in other parts of the Scripture. But the second reason I think this is not a correct way of understanding this text is because if they were truly kings... Now just for a second, remember where we're going. We're going to destruction and the flood. That's where we're leading to with this sin. If these were just kings, why would the Lord be so angry that they married these women? Would it be worth the Lord destroying the entire earth and all of civilization because these kings married these women? So I don't think that's the view we need to take. There's a second view that scholars take. The second view is that these sons of God were descendants of Seth. Now, some people argue based on these two lines that we're referring to when we say the daughters of men and the sons of God, we're referring to the line of Cain 
And we're referring to the line of Seth. There's a godly line and there's an ungodly line. We've already talked about that. We've already seen that. And so what some scholars would say the Lord is trying to tell us here is that we shouldn't intermarry with non-Christians, with non-believers. Now I want to kind of take a step back just for a second out of Genesis chapter 6. And I want to talk about that idea because I think it's important for us to consider. Now the Bible is very clear that we should not, as Scripture says, be unevenly yoked. You know the passage of Scripture, you've read it before. The idea is if you are a Christian, you should marry another Christian. Now, many of us in this room are already married, so I want to speak to those people just for a few minutes, maybe our students or college students or people that are not yet married, because I think you need to understand something very clearly from this passage of Scripture. Think logically with me just for a second here, okay? If you're a Christian, you're called to marry another Christian, right? So that means as you're dating somebody and you're looking for somebody to marry... Shouldn't you only date people that you would in one day fact marry, right? We don't want to date somebody that we would never marry, right? Students, we should be agreeing right this at this point. You don't want to date anybody you can't marry. You're wasting your time. I see some moms that are perking up right now. You're like, yeah, 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 come on, just bring it. Come on, keep saying it, keep saying it, keep saying it, keep saying it. So if we're thinking logically through this, if you're not going to date somebody you should never marry, then if they're not a Christian, you shouldn't be dating them. Right? Students, right? The guys are like, yeah, but is she really good looking? I mean, I mean, what is it? I'll lead her to the Lord. I'll invite her to church, I promise. I'll give her a track at lunch every day. And No! If we're going to think logically through this, we ought to be dating people we can marry. We ought to be dating Christians. Now, those of you that aren't married may not understand this. Those of you that are will. I know plenty of people, and so do you, who started a relationship and they were on opposite ends of the spectrum with their walk with Christ. They didn't think it would matter, only to find out later that it did. We all know people like that. So we ought to start this process of finding a spouse by understanding this very simple truth. We need to date and marry only Christians. Now, I think that's a truth we can pull from the Word of God. However, as we jump back into Genesis chapter 6, I don't think these texts, these verses are speaking about the line of Cain and the line of Seth. There are a couple of reasons I don't think that. One is, although the Bible speaks about not marrying unbelievers, there's no indication that the Lord would destroy the entire earth because somebody did it. The other reason is Seth and Cain have been mentioned extensively all through the passages leading up to this point. You would expect if they were going to continue to talk about Seth and Cain, they would mention them in some way by name. There's a third view that I want to think about that I think, and again I think, I don't know because this is a difficult passage of Scripture. I think this is what the Lord is telling us. This is number three. Some scholars believe that the sons of God were actually fallen angels. Some believe that these sons of God were actually fallen angels. Now, I want to stop for a few minutes and kind of think through this because I think there's some biblical evidence that will help us better understand. One of the interesting things we see here is in verse 1, there's this claim made that humans are increasing in number and they're having daughters. Now, it would be obvious that humans are going to have daughters. We wouldn't necessarily have to explain that or make a big point to say that unless we were comparing it to something maybe that wasn't human. That same line of thinking we see in verse 3. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are, what's the word? Anybody know? Mortal, right? Now that's something we all know and understand, right? We're going to be born, we're going to live, and we're going to die. We've seen that in the book of Genesis. We see that in life. Why would we need to explain that humans are mortal unless we are contrasting it with something that's not human or not mortal? So we got this very interesting... The phrases are interesting in 1, 2, and 3. Why would the Lord use these phrases? And then there's kind of a third point I want to make. If you were to read through the Old Testament, you would see on numerous occasions that this phrase, sons of God, refer in fact to angels or some heavenly being. For example, Daniel chapter 3, verse 25. You may remember the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have gone before King Nebuchadnezzar. They've failed to bow down as they were commanded. He's thrown them into the fiery furnace. When they fall into the furnace, you may remember, Daniel 3.25, Nebuchadnezzar says, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, people have debated what that means. Some say it could have been an angel. Some say it was Christ Himself, but it's very clear in Daniel that this is some sort of a heavenly being. We're not talking about a human here. Job chapter 1 uses the same phrase. Now there was a day when the sons of God, there's that phrase, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Now in some translations, in fact in the NIV, instead of using the phrase son of God in Job there, we see the word angel. So now there was a day when the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. We see that on several different occasions in the book of Job. In fact, if you were to study through the Old Testament, you would see on numerous occasions when the phrase Son of God is used, it's actually referring to an angel. So I think what we see in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, angels that come down from heaven that are marrying these daughters of men. Now you say, how does that happen physically? What does that look like? I don't know. I'm not trying to explain that because the Scripture doesn't give us any more information. Scripture doesn't tell us any more about these angels. There's a verse, and some of you may be remembering, that the Bible tells us that angels in heaven won't marry. That's right. But fallen angels become demonic and do things that angels in heaven won't do. So I think we, we see this sense here where these angels have violated the rule of the Lord. They've fallen from heaven. They've become demonic. They've married these women, and they've had children with them. Now this brings us to a very interesting idea, a very interesting thought as we kind of think through this. We see that these people, these women that the Lord refers to in Genesis chapter 6, had some sort of part in this process because it wasn't, some people have kind of gone a different direction and have said the angels maybe forced themselves upon the women. Here's the problem with that. These women are going to be held responsible and accountable for their actions. Now just bear with me. We've kind of gone deep into this for just a second. I don't want to lose anybody. Just kind of stay with me because we're going to make a very important point here in just a second. These people are held responsible. You say, why why are these people being held responsible? What's the sin they've committed? By the way, what's the sin that's so bad that's going to lead us here in a few chapters to the flood where the Lord's going to destroy everything? I think here's the sin we see in Genesis chapter 6. I think these people, when they had relations with these angels, in some way wanted to be godlike. I think they wanted their children to be godlike. 
They wanted to do everything they could to elevate themselves to the status of the Lord. You said, that's an interesting idea. Is that a sin we've seen before? It's the first sin that we saw. In fact, I'll remind you, Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, the serpent speaking to the woman. Listen to how he tempts her. This is very important in our understanding. For God knows that when you eat from the fruit, your eyes will be opened, and watch this, and you will be like God. See that? He tempts Eve with this idea, if you'll, if you'll just eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. Now we look at these people, we look at Adam and Eve, we look at these daughters of men, we look at people all through Genesis and we say, how could anybody want to be God-like? That's so wrong of them, right? And we begin to cast judgment. And I'll just remind you, it's kind of in our human nature to want to be God-like, isn't it? If we're not careful, we find ourselves wanting to be in total control of all things, don't we? You want to be in control, don't you? We find ourselves kind of wanting to have this power to make decisions. We want to set the rules. Sometimes we want to judge other people. All attributes of the Lord. Things that He's called to do, that He's allowed to do, that we're never called to do, that we're never allowed to do. Instead, what we should begin to do is ask ourselves, how can we be more Christ-like? How can I be loving? How can I be faithful? How can I be kind? How can I be compassionate? See, we've got this picture of a society that moves farther and farther away from the Lord. I've used this analogy several times. They're spiraling farther and farther out of control. And you add sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. And I think at this point in Scripture, Genesis 1, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, we've kind of come to the last straw. God has watched His creation separate themselves in sin more and more. They've desired in the beginning to be like God. They're marrying angels now to try to be more like God. It's a pattern we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. And at this point, we see very simply that God has had enough. And their sin is going to lead to destruction. So we move now to verse 5. So the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth and His heart was deeply troubled. Here's truth number two. The wickedness of man grieves the Lord. The wickedness of man grieves the Lord. Now we see in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis that the population is growing. We see that. More and more children are being born. We can kind of do the math and see the population is going to continue to exponentially grow. But as the population expands, so does sin. So the Lord looks down on earth and He sees, the Bible says, the great wickedness. And He sees the evil. And He makes this comment in verse 5 that's very interesting. That every inclination of the thoughts of the heart are evil all the time. See, if we understand scripturally what God's talking about here, we'll know that the evil that we do, the evil that we say, the mistakes that we make begin in our hearts. Jeremiah chapter 9, 7 and 8. See, I will refine and test them. For what else can I do because of the sin of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully with their mouths. They all speak cordially to their neighbors. But in their hearts, they set traps for them. 
1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Over and over, we get this sense that it's always about our hearts. Now, let's, let's translate that to modern time. Let's apply that just for a second. Here's kind of where we're going with this, and here's what we need to understand. Our actions are important, okay? But it's our heart that really matters. Some of you were here with us when Dr. Ted Tripp was here several weeks ago to do our parenting conference. And Dr. Tripp has written a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart and is known around the world. And he literally travels the world to speak and to preach. But Dr. Ted Tripp kind of has this foundational principle, this foundational understanding based on this scripture. He basically says this, you can modify any child's behavior. You can modify any child's behavior with enough punishment or enough reward. You can modify anybody's behavior. You can modify an animal's behavior with enough reward. You've you've seen that. You understand that. But he says what you have to worry about with a child and, and, and even with adults is not so much what they say and do, although those things are important. What you need to understand instead is their heart. So you, you've got to get to the heart of the matter. Parents, maybe your kids are doing what you want them to do simply because you want them to do it. Maybe you've conditioned their responses enough that they're acting the way they want to act, but in their hearts, they're far from the things of the Lord. Adults. Maybe we're saying the things we ought to say. Maybe we're acting the way we ought to act. Maybe we've been conditioned to say the right things in front of the right people, but our hearts are far from the things of the Lord. Maybe you struggle with this idea of following Christ. Maybe sometimes you're committed to the Lord and at other times you're uncommitted. Maybe times you're excited about attending church and then other times you're not excited about attending church. Maybe there are times when you're willing to serve Christ and other times when you're unwilling to serve Christ. We see this ebb and flow. We see this roller coaster up and down. We see it in Genesis. We see it all through the Old Testament. We see it in our lives. But the Bible tells us if we're ever going to kind of defeat that pattern, we've got to get to the heart. We've got to allow our heart to love the things of the Lord. We've got to walk daily with Christ. We've got to pray to Him. We've got to study His Word. We've got to seek His guidance. We've got to be desiring to follow the Lord and not follow self. Because I think it's very interesting here where this leads as we begin to see this sinfulness and how it affects the Lord. Look at verse 6. It's a very interesting passage. The Bible says, The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. Now there are some that have taken that passage of Scripture to say, well, the, the Lord must change because it says He regretted, or maybe the Lord doesn't actually know. Maybe the Lord can't understand the future. Maybe He's not all-knowing. Maybe He's not all-powerful. I don't think that's at all what that text says. I think the point of that text very simply is the Lord's heart was breaking because of the sin of His people. He looked down at His precious creation. You remember, and I don't want to review all this, but we spent many weeks talking about creation. And one of the things we saw in creation is that the Lord perfectly prepared the earth for humans. Everything was right. Everything was created properly. 
Everything was put into place. Why? Because He loved us and wanted to create us in His image. And He placed us into this perfect environment. And then after Genesis 3.15, everything has changed. So the Lord looks down upon His beautiful creation and He sees that the sinfulness of man has torn creation apart. God is grieved by our sin. But we need to be careful. We're about to step into a place that's going to make some of you uncomfortable. It's one thing for us to talk about the, the, this demonic invasion and what was happening in the sin of these people's hearts. We can either even take it a step farther to say that the Lord is grieved when we sin. It upsets Him when we sin. We see that in Scripture, but there's another truth that's not nearly as comfortable, but is absolutely true. Look at verse 7. So, right, because of all this that's happened, so, the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here's truth number three. It's uncomfortable to us. It's something we don't often think about and talk about, but it's absolute biblical truth. Number three, God's wrath is all-consuming. God's wrath is all-consuming. Verse 7 is one of the more sobering texts in all the Scripture. The Lord says, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race. See, the sin of humans has led the Lord to this place. That other than Noah and his family who were righteous and found favor in the sight of the Lord, He is going to completely and utterly destroy mankind and all of the creation. You say, why would the Lord decide to destroy and wipe out the entire human race from the earth because of sin? That's it. Because of the sinfulness of these people, we see this very simple but very powerful truth. When sin becomes too widespread, God displays His wrath. You say, what does the wrath of God look like? Is it going to be a slap on the wrist? Is He going to put me in time out? Is He going to withhold some blessings? Let me just read kind of, I think, a synopsis of, of His power in Deuteronomy 8. 19 and 20. Listen to these words. And this is, this is spoken to the people thousands of years ago in the Old Testament, but it hits our heart dead center today. Listen. If you ever <laughs> forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. See, there is absolute precedent in Scripture that when sin overtakes the society, the Lord is slow to anger, His love abounds, but there comes a point when He's had enough. There's a point in history when God's wrath is displayed, and when He displays His wrath, it is all-consuming. One of the things we talked about at this South Asia conference was the people in Nepal. 
Now, some of you have gotten one of these little flyers. I hope you got it when you came in. If you didn't, I want you to pick one up when you leave. I don't want, you don't have to look at it right now because you'll end up reading it for the rest of the sermon. Don't do that. Okay? I taught school long enough. Just put this thing away and look at it later. I'm putting mine away. But it gives you a prayer guide. It helps you understand what these people are going through. We need to be praying for these people. Homes have been destroyed. Lives have been lost. Trust me, just understand that part of the world. There are people in remote villages that still haven't seen a rescue worker. There are people in remote villages that will probably never see a rescue worker. So we pray for that great need. But one of the missionaries that served in this part of the world this past weekend made just a very profound comment to this conference. He said, we need to pray for these people, certainly because of what they're going through. But he said, I want you to understand about something that's happening in Nepal right now. He said, you may have heard on TV or the radio that within Nepal, when this earthquake hit, and by the way, there have been all sorts of aftershocks that are literally moving through the country from west to east. He said, you've heard on the radio, on the news, that when these earthquakes hit, that a lot of very historic places in Nepal were destroyed. Some of you may have heard of that. A lot of the historic sites have been destroyed in Nepal. He said, what the news media won't necessarily tell you is that most of these historic places had some sort of religious significance. Most of them were temples. He said, these were Hindu temples that have been preserved for centuries by the local people because they believe that those places of worship hold spiritual power. That's what they believed. Now here's the words of the missionary. He said, what you need to understand and what most of the world will never fully understand is that for many, many years, for decades, missionaries in Nepal have been praying that those houses of worship would be shaken by the power of the Lord. Some of them were shaken to their foundation. You see, the Lord's all-powerful. And when there is a group of people, a nation... A continent that turns from the Lord, He's going to endure only so long. But there will come a point, as has always been the case, when the Lord says, Enough. We're moving to that point in Genesis chapter 7. And I wonder, as so many of you do, where we are in our country right now. You know, we kind of take for granted the fact that we live in a country of peace we got to take for granted the fact that we live in a country where food is abundant. We take for granted that we live in a country where you can literally drink the water from the faucet and have no repercussions. But you need to understand something very clearly. Throughout history and even throughout the world today, that is rare. Small percentage of people throughout history have lived in these circumstances. And the small percentage of people that lived in these circumstances found out that it didn't last. There's coming a day when it won't be like it is today. There's coming a day when we won't have all the things that we've been given. And so I look across the landscape of our country and what we're going through and what far too many Christians are silent about over and over, all sorts of issues, and I wonder, when is the Lord just going to say, Enough. And he's going to judge our country. So we look at passages of Scripture like this. We look at our country today and we ask the question, is there any hope? And I love what the Lord does here. We've seen it all through the book of Genesis. We're going to see it all through the Scripture in the midst of absolute decimation. 
in the midst of absolute destruction and sinfulness, in the midst of great suffering, we find hope. Buried in the passages of Scripture, Genesis 6-8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Did you know the hope of people in centuries past, the hope of people today and the hope of people from eternity to come is always in the things, always in the things of the Lord. You understand the only hope we have is in Christ. The only hope for our country is in Christ. The only hope for our church is Christ. The only hope for our family is Christ. The only hope for that relationship you don't think can be fixed is Christ. The only hope for that child that's gone astray is Christ. The only hope for that boss that just doesn't understand is Christ. There's no other hope. It's found nowhere else. And yet I see so often, and you do too, so many people that look for hope in so many different places and never find it. See, God displayed His all-powerful wrath. God displayed His justice. But in the middle of that, He gave us hope. Jesus Christ has been the hope from the beginning. And He's still the hope now. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this clear picture of Your power, Lord, and where sinfulness will ultimately lead us, Lord, the destruction that we've seen. Father, thank You that even in the middle of Your justice and Your wrath, there's always hope. There's hope for our families today, Lord. There's hope for our country. Lord, there's hope for our individual lives, but it's only found in Christ. Help us, Lord, so many of us to stop wasting our time looking for hope other places because it can only be found in You. So You be clear to us today, Lord. You speak clearly to us. You help us take what we've learned and, and apply it to our lives. Father, we want to find hope in You. And then we want to take that hope and, and share it with all those that don't yet know so you can receive honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you the chance for the next few minutes if you want to come and pray at the altar. Maybe you need to pray about that hope. Maybe you're- Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.